Well, we continue on then in our walk through Lamentations this week. And uh, it is a little bit of a lengthy read, but that's okay. Um, It's good to hear from God's Word. And once again this morning, uh, we will be in Lamentations. We'll be in Lamentations chapter 2 this morning. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 22 or or the entirety of the chapter. So chapter. So if you are able, please rise as we read God's Word from Lamentations chapter 2. Hear the reading of God's Word. At the conclusion of the reading, I will say this is the reading of God's Word. And together again we will say, thanks be to God. This is God's Word. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth to the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered His footstool on the day of His anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In His wrath He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground and dishonored the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them His right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent His bow like an enemy, with His right hand set like a foe. And He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes, in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out His fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste His booth like a garden. Laid in ruins His meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in His fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned His altar, disowned His sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised the clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain His hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. churns. My bile is poured out onto the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is the bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hand at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we've longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word. 
from which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day. My terror is on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and erased my enemy destroyed. So far the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. The grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but the Word of the Lord stands firm and true forever. Lord, we trust Your Word that these words are true. So use this Word for Your good and for Your glory. Mold us and shape us. Make us more like You, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It is the will of the Lord that His people know Him. It is the will of the Lord that His true people not only know Him, but know Him well. It is the Lord's will that there is a deep and intimate relationship between Himself and His people. It's a relationship that demands intimacy. It's a relationship that demands connectivity. It's a relationship that demands security and solidarity. And it demands that nothing come between the Lord and His people. However, as we look at our lives and we know ourselves pretty well, we quickly understand that there are many things that come in between us and the Lord. For we have many lords, don't we? We have many gods. We worship many things. We have many things that hinder our relationships with each other and with our God. The fracturing then of these relationships, both of each other and with the Lord in particular, often leads to consequences. Consequences that have dire endings. Difficult endings, terrible endings. The Lord knows this about us. He knows that we long for other things other than Him. He knows that we long for security and comfort. He knows that we long for money and power. He knows that we long for everything to be easy, to be comfortable, to be the way we want them to be. He knows this deeply about us. And He also knows that we're quick to turn. These pursuits then lead to hardship. Even as we look at our own relationships, think of our families, think of our friends, think of our churches. When we look at our relationships, we want what's best for me personally. Most times not for the other person. This is what happened to the people of the Lord in Lamentations. They pursued other things. They pursued other gods. 
They pursued other desires, other loves, other relationships, other things than the Lord God Himself. And now they face and are experiencing destruction. For there were many prophets, see Jeremiah, this will happen to you if you don't turn back to the Lord. You will be destroyed if you don't turn back to the Lord over and over again. And then there were false prophets even in the time of Jeremiah and leading up to these events that we find in Lamentations, these false prophets said, there's no problem in your life. You, you, you've got it all together. There's no worries here. Everything's just fine. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep searching after the things that make you comfortable, that make, that make you important, powerful, wealthy. There's no problem here. The city is beautiful. The temple is gorgeous. Look at these things. Keep on keeping on. But these prophets were false. And now they are in the situation where they are. The lives and the livelihoods of the people are left in rubble. The city is in ruins. They are literally eating their old and their young. For there is no food in the city. The leaders sit by doing nothing. It is then with this understanding that we begin to see what's happening. And it's in that moment where the people of God began to understand that the only thing they had left was the Lord God Himself. It's there where they begin to lean and to trust on the Lord. And it's in the struggle and it's in the hardship oftentimes in our own lives too, isn't it? Where we begin to truly lean and trust on the Lord. For when things are comfortable and when they're good and when they're right, we don't need God. Because we figured it out. We've got the silver bullet that makes my life perfect. But it's really easy when things are hard to come onto our knees and beg forgiveness. But God understands that too. God then gives us the ability in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the hardship, to hold on to something or a few things. He gives us assurances to hold on to in the difficulty, in our own sin, and in our struggles. And I would say to you, these assurance are actually acts of mercy. It's that the Lord gives us things to hang our hats on, if you will. To, to, to lock into, if you will. And these things are His assurances of who He is. Of His faithfulness, of His mercy, of His kindness, of His goodness, of Himself. That He will never leave or forsake us. I would put forward to you that these are merciful acts. When I say to you the word mercy, what do you think of? This morning, we've sung a lot about mercy, and we will continue to do so even as the service concludes. So when we think of the word mercy, what do you think of? Just knee-jerk reaction, right? I think of, when I ask myself that question, I think of justification. I think of forgiveness. These are the things that are, are the way that we normally think about God's mercy. And they're right, and they're true, and there's, there's goodness in that. However, do we tend to have a limited view of mercy, I wonder? Is this all mercy is? Is just forgiveness? Grace? Certainly those are huge things, right? But the Lord is bigger than just that. The Lord's mercy... Let's try that again. The Lord's mercy is more, right? As we sing in this song. The Lord's mercy is more than our sins, of course. But the Lord's mercy is more than just justification, sanctification, all of these kind of things. 
I want to put forward to you this morning that the book of Lamentations, the Psalms of Lament, are actually things of mercy. God gives these to us in a merciful pose. So what is mercy? For God's people in the wake of destruction in Jerusalem, a large part of the mercy of the Lord is that He gives them assurances and He gives them a voice. He gives them the ability to cry out. He gives them the freedom to say, this is who I am. These are my struggles. This is my heart. This is where I'm at, O God. Here in Lamentations chapter 2, the Lord's assurance through mercy actually gives meaning to their struggle. gives meaning to their lives. It gives meaning to our relationships as well, does the book of Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament. Not only with God, but with one another. To acknowledge the struggle, to acknowledge the hurt and the pain and the sorrow. I was watching a show last night, and I, I think I've seen it before. I never really paid attention to this in the past, but CNN did a, has done a documentary, I guess if you will, on, on, the, on the decades, right? 70s, 80s, and 90s. And last night I just turned it on, and it was, it was the 90s, right? Right in my wheelhouse. I know a thing or two about the 90s. I kind of cut my teeth in the 90s. But the 90s musically were a bit off, right? The 80s was a bunch of hair metal and kind of crazy, big hair, makeup, all this kind of stuff, right? Just this big facade of, of false reality, of big money, big cars, all of this. And then the 90s come along and we, they realized, hey, there's something more to life than just this facade of reality. Then there was this woman that came onto the scene and I'm not recommending her song. I'm not even recommending the lyrics. They're not nice. They're, they're not ethical, all of that. But they're real, there was a song you ought to know by Alanis Morissette who actually began to talk about her breakup with a lover. And it was hard. And it was difficult. And she was very crass. And again, I'm not recommending the song. I'm just saying she understood the heartache and she now had the freedom. And then women began to hear, the other uh, female artists began to hear this story. And they now had a voice too to say, this is our struggle. This is our hardship. This is who we are. Because it was real and raw. And Alanis Morissette, I'm going to not quote her directly, but she said, I didn't think anybody else was feeling the same way that I did. I didn't think anybody else had the same hurts and pains and struggles that I did. In the 90s, that album sold over 50 million copies. We understand struggle. We understand hardship. And it's, mercy, it's merciful when we have the ability to express this struggle. And the Lord gives us His Word to express this. When the world has crashed down around God's people, they now have a voice. When the world crashes down around us, we now have a voice. And He gives it to us in His Word. He doesn't leave us alone, but He actually wants us to cry. He wants us to tell us the reality. In His mercy, the Lord hears the cries of the people and He hears our cries and our hurts as well. In His mercy, the Lord is present in the struggle. He could have just as easily wiped out the people just as, just as He did the city. But He left the walls in ruins and in rubble. He could have cast the people to the sword of the oppressor, but He didn't. He calls them to Himself. And this is a merciful act. In the struggle, there is mercy. And this mercy allows us to express our hurts, our frustrations, our struggles. And here it is in this text in Lamentations 2 that we see the mercy in these assurances. And I just want to briefly give you the outline of 
of where we're headed here this morning. So the first few verses of verses 1 to 10, that suffering actually has meaning. There's, suffering is meaningful. It's, it's not without meaning to us. Suffering just doesn't happen because God's angry at us, right? The second section is our grieving is permissible. God actually wants us to grieve. And then thirdly, when we question, it's acceptable to the Lord. We can ask questions, even, even as I spoke on a few weeks ago. God wants us to cry out. But there's something unique about how the Lord chooses to assure us. It may not be in exactly the way that we would desire. It may not be in exactly the way that we would design. Yet the assurances of the Lord are real nonetheless. What we are assured of through the book of Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament is that we realize that not all of our problems will go away. They're not just going to magically disappear all of a sudden. There's no easy button that says now everything's great and all my problems are now forgotten. That's not real life. And this is what Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament give to us. They recognize this reality. Life is a struggle in our sin and in our brokenness. It is a challenge and it is full of trials. But in the struggle, it may very well be that everything that we love more than God is stripped away in order that God would know us and we would know Him intimately. In our introduction to the book of Lamentations a couple of weeks ago, I gave a bit of a context. But it didn't give us really an outline of the book, but I think it's important for us to have a a good working understanding of just what the book of Lamentations is. The book of Lamentations is five poems. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 are five poems. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 are each 22 verses long. Chapter 3 is three times that amount, 66 verses long. And what the poet does is take the, the first letter of each alphabet of the, he, of the Hebrew alphabet and begin each line. So let's A, B, C, D, E, F, G is the English alphabet. Now write a poem where the first line is A and then B and the second line is B, third line is C, so on and so forth. This is what the poet does in the book of Lamentations with one, two, four, and 5. And then in, verse, in chapter 3, the third poem, he then triples that, right? And does the same thing. Why? Why, why does he have this type of structure, this organization, just to be nice and neat and tidy? Perhaps. Maybe. It's really good poetry. But also that there's organization and there's structure and there's, there's sovereignty in the middle of the chaos. Things aren't out of control entirely, right? Even in the poetry, the Lord is sovereign and is governing and is working. Things aren't spinning out of control. And this is an encouragement. This is an assurance. And so we have a better understanding of who the Lord is even in the middle of all of this. And then right smack in the middle of the third poem, chapter 3, is the crux of the book. It says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love, for He does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men. In other words, the Lord is merciful and He is clear that the exile and the punishment has a specific end. And those who believe are given assurances to that end through His mercy. 
it then serves us well to understand the same assurances, the same mercy. So in the first ten verses are giving meaning to us. As we look closer at the first ten verses of this poem, there's an extremely clear pattern. And I hope even as I read it, you began to even hear the repetition. I, I tried to have influxes of my tone, of, of how I even read it to, to help us understand what this looks like. As good Bible readers, we have to understand a few things. Context, right? The larger context, not only the book or, or of the Testament, but the entire Bible. We have to understand links between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have to see where the Gospel flows in and out of each and every book. But we also have to pay attention to repetitions, especially in Hebrew. So let's just look at it very quickly. I'm not going to go through all of these things because it would take a very long time. But verse 1, He has set, He has cast down, He has not. Verse 2, He has swallowed, He has broken down, He has brought down. Verse 3, He has cut, has withdrawn, has burned, and then jump to verse 8. The Lord has determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. Verse 9, Her gates have sunk into the ground. The city is utterly destroyed. The once strong city is now limp and weak and has no protection. And in verse 10, The elders sit in silence. A picture of futility. A picture of brokenness. Even the leaders are defeated and speechless. What can they say? Their city has been destroyed. What is happening? Why this destruction of this once great city? Why the destruction of the people? For many inside these walls and even more outside of these walls here, think of God in the sense that He's just waiting, right? He's waiting for you to mess up. And that moment that you mess up, whack. Right? I think I've used this illustration in this church before. If I have, you're going to hear it again. If not. But when I was a boy, there was a game I liked to play in the arcade called Whack-A-Mole. Right? You put a quarter in and there's six or nine mechanical moles and you had a, a, a mallet. And when the mole popped up, you were to hit the, the mole on the head and you'd get tickets for some overpriced whistle. Right? Isn't that often how we think of God as just a -a whack-a-mole kind of God? The moment that we pop our heads up in brokenness and defeat, He's just ready, waiting with a mallet to whack us on the head? Isn't, Isn't this how we think of the Lord? And I think for many people even in Jerusalem here, this is what they felt, that the Lord is just vengeful. And He's swinging His terrible swift sword upon their lives. And we think upon our lives the moment that we do anything wrong. Is this what is happening here in Lamentations? Is this what's happening in the destruction of Jerusalem? Certainly there's a part of judgment and wrath that's taking place, but we must also understand that God's people in the Old Testament had a different kind of relationship and a different role, a different function than even that we do now. Right? For God set out a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they were to be a blessing to the nations. That, that, that salvation and the Lord would come through them. And, and they had this covenant with the Lord. Salvation would come from this physical line. And then these people here are the physical offspring and spiritual offspring of these men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Of this covenant 
those to whom they had a specific covenant, those to whom a specific covenant was made with them, the Lord gave them strict instructions of who they were to be and who they were not to be, to not turn from the Lord their God. They were to worship Him and worship Him alone. We see this in the book of Jeremiah and many of the other prophets. So there's not a direct connection between the people of Israel or Jerusalem and let's say the United States of America. There is some connection, but it's not direct. And yes, in some sense, struggle and trial is the judgment of the Lord, but that's not all that there is. So the people of God are now one nation with many nations encompassing it. So the direct correlation is not one to one. So does this mean that the United States is immune to the judgment of the Lord? No, but it does mean that Israel played a unique role. A unique role in redemptive historical history. A different role perhaps before Jesus than after Jesus. And part of that role, as some theologians would say, is their exile. Part of that role was the exile and the destruction of this city. So what's the point of all of this? What's the point of this destruction of this city? What's the point of, of God doing this to, to this people? What does this have to do with suffering and, and, and meaning and mercy? This is not to say that when you suffer or you have a challenge, a struggle or a trial, that God is necessarily wielding His judgment against you. What we also know is that not every single person in Jerusalem rebelled against God. There were some that were faithful. There were some that did not worship. There were some that, that were faithful to the covenant, and, but yet as a community, as a, as a body of Christ, as the body of the Lord, as God's people, they all suffered together. What we also know is that not every single person in God's community now is necessarily the most heinous. We're all broken, certainly. We're all guilty, no doubt. But we have a different role to play in the redemptive historical story of God. What we need to know here is that the Lord is faithful to His people. And we need to know what the meaning of suffering actually is. The Lord just doesn't have a suffer for suffering's sake. We see this in Philippians 1. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. This means that the suffering that is granted to believers from the Lord is a gift. And this suffering then produces something, doesn't it? As we find out in Romans chapter 5. We rejoice in our suffering. We don't like to hear those words. We rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And then further in 1 Peter chapter 2, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of the God, in, in, in sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
Therefore, no matter what we feel about suffering, no matter how we feel about it, there is meaning in suffering. Suffering has value in our lives. As crazy as what that sounds, the Lord uses suffering in our lives to bring us closer to Himself. The Bible clearly teaches us that suffering has this meaning. One purpose may indeed be judgment. But on the other hand, the purpose of suffering is to mold us into a people more like Christ and a deeper, intimate relationship with our Father. I came across this illustration. This is not mine. I'm begging, I'm borrowing, and stealing, and I'm just going to be open and honest about that. Uh, But an author by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge, a former atheist who became a Christian later in life, he experienced a great change in his life in his book, A 20th Century Testimony. He states these words, and I quote, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through difficult affliction and not through happiness. Americans don't say that very often. Christians don't say that very often. I don't say that very often. As a matter of fact, I want it to be the opposite of that. I want the defining things in my life to be the happy things. But honestly, even as I look back on my own life, the defining things in my life have been the struggles, have been the trials. We don't like suffering. And it's hard to live in the middle of it. And it's even harder to understand that there is meaning behind it. How could God have a hand in both my suffering and love me at the same time? It doesn't make any sense. How could this be? How how, how could God ordain my suffering and still love me? That doesn't compute in our brains. God, however, is in control of all things, including our suffering, including our trials. He is doing far more than simply reacting to the things that we do or don't do. Our consequences of our brokenness is not God's reaction to our brokenness. No, God's even sovereign over that. He's not reacting to what you do or don't do. He doesn't need you to be good or bad. He is sovereign Himself. So our, our actions, our consequences are not God's reaction to our sin. For God is sovereign even over our struggle. He's doing far more than reacting to the things that are happening in the world. God knows there's a global pandemic. God, God knows that there's struggles in school. That revenue is down in your company. God knows that relationships are, are frayed because of this thing. God knows globally the trials and the struggles of countries and cities and people. He knows these things and He's sovereign over these things. He's not reacting to the fact that there is a pandemic or there are struggles. As a matter of fact, we believe that He has ordained these things. Proverbs 15, excuse me, Proverbs 16 says these things, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Even Joseph in Genesis, when seeing his brothers again after they sold him into slavery, Forgive me, I have a contact that's going bananas here this morning. Even, a, even Joseph in Genesis, when seeing his brothers again after they sold him into slavery, what did he say? Right, You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. So even the most heinous of things, like these brothers 
trying to sell and kill their brother, God still meant it for good. He is sovereign over the suffering of His people. And He's sovereign in your struggle, in your trial, in your heartbreak. So what's the conclusion of these first ten verses? Suffering has meaning. Suffering is meaningful. And then in verses 12 to 19, we see the poet's response to what the Lord has done. Verse 11, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My, my bile is poured out onto the ground. I don't know that I need to define the word bile for you. <laughs> but let's just say it's not nice. But some of you know what it means to cry your guts out. This is what the author of Lamentations is doing. This is what he sees as he looks over his city. People crying their guts out. Some of you know verse 13. What can I say for you? To what compare you? Your ruin is as vast as the sea. The poet looking over the city, his people, those he loves, the things he loves, he weeps over these false prophets who told him it's no problem. There's no problem here. Look the other way. It's the adage that we seek advice until we get what we want to hear, right? We go around to person to person to person until we find the one person that agrees with us. Verse 15 says that those who pass by clap their hands, hiss and wag their heads. Is this the city of beauty? The enemies of God's people gloat now over their destruction. The author is coming to terms with the reality of their actions, right? The reality of the suffering, the stark reality of truth. In verse 18, we are told to let our tears stream down like a torrent. Verse 19, arise, cry out in the night, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Often in our struggle and our grief, we have a tendency, don't we, to hold it in. In our world, I don't remember who was the advertiser. I tried to find it and I couldn't, but never let him see you sweat. What was that, Arid or Speed Stick or something, right? This antiperspirant advertisement. You rub it on there, and, and when you're right, about ready to go into a meeting and you don't want people to see you sweat, so you put this deodorant on and your life is great, and there's no more nerves, or at least none that are shown. This is what we do in Western culture, right? It, we don't want people to see our weakness. We don't want people to understand and to know that I am broken, that I'm hurting. And here, Jeremiah is saying, no, forget that. Let them see you sweat. Not only sweat, but let them see you cry. Pour out your tears like a river in the presence of the Lord. Cry your guts out to God when you're hurting and when you are in pain. But the John Wayne world of Western culture speaks against that. And we say when we cry in our world that it's a sign of weakness or no faith. But Jeremiah certainly is a man of faith. And yet he cries his guts out. Crying and calling out to God makes sense. And here in Lamentations and the Psalms, we are given permission to cry out. Not only just permission, but we're encouraged to cry out to the Lord. We're given the ability and His mercy to, to throw ourselves at His feet. And so this is the mercy of the Lord. He gives us the ability and the permission to weep, to mourn, to express reality, to not pretend any longer. Grieving is valuable to the Lord. Even He grieves the impact 
of sin. See Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. See Jesus as He looks over this same city some years later as He enters into Palm Sunday. This is what's on display for us in chapter 2. It seems that we are expressing our full faith in God when we weep over our trials and our struggles and our hurts. But we like to live on the surface, don't we? We like to make sure that nobody really sees what's going on. We, we, like to, we like the veneer a whole lot more than the reality, but it seems to me to live deeply is to wrestle with the deep brokenness of our lives. If we want deep and meaningful lives, then we have to wrestle with the deep and meaningful hurts and struggles and trials in our lives as much as we do the joys and celebrations in our lives. To live deeply is to love deeply and to weep deeply. It's impossible to deal with our kind of brokenness without grief. So pour out your heart like water before the Lord. It's in His mercy we're given permission to grieve and to pour out our hearts. And finally, our questioning is acceptable. In the last few verses, the poet takes his questions to God. Verse 20, With whom have you dealt thus? Should this happen? Should that happen? This is an emotional appeal to God. He's asking God, is this really necessary? What we see here is natural and acceptable to ask God, why? Why is this happening? Why, God? There are three more poems and lamentations, and looking at all of them gives us this full picture. But as this particular poem ends, the darkness it hasn't lifted yet. And the, and the poet asks, why? The questions go unanswered. Isn't that how suffering often seems? The question goes unanswered. You pray in the night, you weep in the night, and yet the questions are unanswered. When you wake up, there still is no answer. When you go to sleep, there still is no answer, and it happens again the next day. But in God's mercy, He says it's okay to ask. Where are you? Why, God? This doesn't make any sense. Is this how it has to be? Often in Scripture, we hear God's people ask questions. How long, God? When, God? Why me, God? Amazingly, then, these three assurances that God gives us in our hardship are all on display in the life of the person who brings us to God. The life of Jesus shows us that our suffering is meaningful. For Jesus suffered for our purpose, 1 Peter chapter 3, right? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Suffering is meaningful. The life of Jesus shows us that grieving is permissible. Jesus grieved, Matthew 26 tells us, that on the night of His betrayal, on the night before His death, He told his closest friends, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Stay up with me. Don't leave me alone. And the life of Jesus shows that our questioning is acceptable. Jesus asked the Father questions again in Matthew 26. Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's as if he's saying, Father, is there another way? Why this way? Can there be another way? Can there be another way other than this suffering? Jesus is asking questions of the Father. And then on the cross in Matthew 27, the very next chapter, right? Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus was crying out on our behalf. He cried out as we cry out, yet He had perfect trust. And as we suffer then, we look to that trust. We look to that perfection. We look to Jesus. Our questions then turn to Him. And we see that He took our suffering and our grief on the cross and He gives us perfect meaning. His suffering gives us meaning. He gives us permission. And He gives us acceptance. You see, He understood perfectly the value of grief. And He endured. He endured without sin. He endured the lonely pangs of isolated questions. He did this so that you and I could trust. Not in our grief, not in our success, but in Him. That we would trust in Him and His righteousness. So what do we do with all this? How do we walk away from here? It comes with admission. Admission that we're broken. And that we need Him. So what do we do? We turn to Him. And we cry out. And we trust. For He's a God of covenant faithfulness that said, I will never leave or forsake. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. As hard as what it is to say and to pray, we thank you for the trials. We rejoice in the struggle. For we realize and we recognize that these things draw us closer to you. So Lord, may we see your face. May we see your grace. May we see your mercy. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.